All right. It is the week of February 19th, 2023, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Gauthier, and today we've got four main topics we want to cover. First off, whether you want to call it UFC Vegas 70 or UFC Fight Night 220, this weekend's fight card for the UFC has the distinction of every bout having at least one Dana White Contender Series alum or Ultimate Fighter alum. Big deal, because I do believe this is the future of UFC Fight Night cards. I'll break down exactly what I mean, as well as the business strategy behind this, and what the UFC and Endeavor may do to mitigate some backlash for this being a more common occurrence than it currently is right now. Then we're going to talk about Jake Paul. He's fighting Tommy Fury this weekend. We're not going to talk about the fight itself so much, but we need to talk about the fact that Paul will get a ranking should he get past Fury. It has industry-wide ramifications. It opens the door for a lot of things in the YouTuber, influencer, boxing world. We're going to break all of that down as well as what happens if Paul does fight Nate Diaz next and he has a number next to his name. Then we're going to talk about a bill being proposed in California that would set up an MMA pension fund for retired MMA fighters. It's an interesting bill. We'll break it down in depth. It's got support from Ronda Rousey, who not too long ago opposed similar type language in legislation. We're going to talk about what it means, the likelihood of it getting passed, and if it has broader implications, if it were to get passed um, on the federal level, which leads us into our last topic, comments made by Aspen Lads head coach Jim West regarding the possibility of new legislation hitting the federal level regarding MMA fighter pension funds, as well as apparently a subset of language that is similar to the Ali Act. We need to break down what we know in that regard, talk about the Ali Act expansion, talk about the general political climate when it comes to these things, because it's probably the fighter's best hope of getting real change in the sport to happen anytime soon. So with that in mind, timestamps at the bottom as always, and let's go ahead and dive right in. All right, first thing we're going to talk about today is this weekend's UFC fight, Krylov versus Span, and the fact that every single bout that is currently on the card has at least one Dana White Contender Series alum, even the main event with Span being a DWCS alum, or two Ultimate Fighter finalists going against each other with Tatiana Suarez and Montana De La Rosa. I believe this is the first time it's ever happened. But if you've been following this show, I've talked about how this type of thing was inevitable. More and more, we see fighters being cut that didn't come from Contender Series or the Ultimate Fighter, and guys being signed, going on losing streaks from those shows, and still sticking around the UFC. This is Endeavor's cost-cutting strategy. 40% of Endeavor's debt is variable interest. This week, inflation rose unexpectedly. The Fed will almost certainly have to raise rates in response, at least using the Fed's favorite measure. They, they were always going to raise rates, but they may raise them more now. If you've seen the stock market be a little bit bumpy, that's part of the reason why. As they raise those interest rates, that variable debt, again, gets more and more expensive for Endeavor. And part of the way that you combat that to keep your profit margins as high as they are or continue to grow is to cut costs. Now, we've talked about 
what can Endeavor do to cut costs internally? And on their side, right, obviously in their other divisions, there's options they can take. But in the UFC, you're at this point where you've really streamlined most of your operations and you've already done a lot of the quote unquote trimming of the fat when you first bought the company, right? That was the firing of legends like Chuck Liddell or Matt Hughes who were getting paid this salary to kind of hang around and not do much. Um, you know, the, the, the story that circulates is that the only reason Forrest Griffin didn't get fired is because he was the only one that showed up and actually cared. Right. And now he's doing a lot for athlete performance and, you know, running up PI stuff. It's one of those things where there's, there's not too much fat left to cut other than fighters. If you think about even three or four years ago, the amount of fighters where you had some name value or were kind of in the middle and yes, they maybe had a ranking next to their name. Most likely they didn't, but they were in that. Maybe they go on a streak. They'd get a shot at a ranking type of area. And these guys were getting their contracts extended. And when you saw disclosed salary pay, which used to be more common, you would see that at least based on those purse estimates, and those aren't always 100% accurate in terms of what a fighter makes behind the scenes, all that stuff could go all over that. And we probably will need to at some point because some people are taking those as gospel. They're not. But even the base purses of those were higher in general. It was not these 10K, 10K contracts. Uh, you would have, you know, a 40K, 40K fighter, an 80, 80, couple of six figure show and wins. Those were more rare, but still, if they'd been around long enough, you'd see that. That's the thing of the past. The way to look at this is in a, a interesting metaphorical way is the middle class UFC fighter. When you go from the ranges of the brand new guy to the super wealthy, high paid, the middle class of UFC fighter has been eliminated or is being phased out. You do not continue to see the Antonio Carlos juniors who went over the PFL, made a million. Great. But he was a guy who was around for a long time, was making a decent show win, right? Those, those fighters are gone. It's now kind of a sink or swim mode of you come in on a contender series or an ultimate fighter contract. Those are usually longer contracts for pretty low pay. If you win enough, you're able to renegotiate, get better money, kind of make what you need to get to that upper tier. And if you're, you know, somebody like an Aaron Blanchfield, right, who goes out, beats Andrade, is making a name for herself, you're able to renegotiate the contract in a way where you're actually making pretty good pay. But it's really now at this point, ranked fighters versus Dana White contender series people. And that's not necessarily that they're going up against each other, but the gap is pretty much there, right? You used to have a much wider gap in pay. It, it is, or I don't want to say wider gap between maximum and minimum pay, but you used to have a, a broader range of pay in the middle, especially. And that is evaporating very quickly, if not already mostly gone. This is Endeavor's strategy with Fight Night cards, right? Think about the total cost of this entire Fight Night card. Now, yes, you have somebody like Ryan Spann, who's obviously made it to the main event. He's stuck around a lot around long enough and and he's had kind of a middling career in some ways right he's 
he's had those ups and downs, but he is still someone where he went from an early contract that was longer and much less money to now getting the main event spot. And I'm sure getting a bigger bump and he's being put in a fight night on the apex that frankly, this card as a whole, right. Is one of the weakest on paper from a name value perspective. Definitely from a rankings perspective, but name value perspective. Yes, you have the return of Tatiana Suarez, which is a big deal. Um, you do have Span and Krylov, who are no names. But beyond that, it's mostly new guys. A lot of untested people here, right? Um, people on losing streaks. You got Sakai fighting Dante Mays. Sakai is on a pretty rough losing streak right now. You've got uh, Munez and, and Brandon Allen. Okay, that's something but again we're not talking upper echelon guys here um a lot versus lanice uh eric gonzalez ghost pepper gonzalez versus trevor peak you got a pretty weak name value card with newer signees but the total cost of the card right if you're on 10k 10k i i mean basically from the prelims down and probably even the opening main card. I know things have shifted a little shifted a little with uh, a couple of fights being canceled, but like you know, you're looking at let's say that they're, they're all on 10k, 10k contracts or 12k, 12k if we want to go that level, but let's do 10k, 10k because we know that's the entry level for Dana White contender series. That means per fight providing no fight of the night bonuses any of that stuff, that's $30,000 per fight on those prelims because you're going to have show money for each fighter at 20 K and then one is going to win and get that extra 10. That is extremely cheap for a fight night card. Extremely cheap compared to what it was even, even two years ago, pre pandemic. Well, that's longer than that. Now I know time's all wonky, but I, I mean that, that is an extremely cheap cost basis. And then, yes, you can give more money to somebody like Suarez or Span, uh, Munez, sure. But again, you're also not giving them crazy big numbers necessarily. And then you look at the fact that it's an Apex card. So the only seats that are sold are the VIP experience ones, which are much higher. The production costs are much lower because it's in-house. It's one of the cheapest total costing cards for the ufc or endeavor of the year easily the cheapest of the year so far and may end up being the cheapest in 2023 depending on how they continue to book but that's what endeavor wants right that is a way to cut costs still get that same contracted revenue from espn that is you know a ridiculous amount of money uh to deliver 750 million dollars or whatever to deliver X amount of cards, that still counts as one of them. So they're making a greater profit. Now, again, their debt is higher. Sponsorships may have contingencies on certain things and viewership. Sure, but it, it is clear that at this point, Contender Series 
and the ultimate fighter, which is still going on, obviously, right? With McGregor and Chandler coming back. They are the new farming system. Used to be much more LFA champs, um, Titan fighting championships. And again, this is not that long ago. This is three, four years ago. Those champions usually got the call up to just appear on regular fight night cards. There was not this middle ground BS of contender series. Now all of those standouts from those feeder leagues go to contender series. And it's not because they need to prove themselves or whatever. It's because it's a way to lock fighters in for the 10K, 10K contract and lock them in for multiple fight deals with that. I'm surprised that it took them this long to utilize it the way that they have, but this was always going to be the case. The whole point of that show after a couple seasons, and especially the past couple where Dana's like, we don't just sign anybody here, and then it's like every winner is signed almost, right? The whole point is to create that as the true entry level into the UFC and to lock fighters in for long-term contracts at lower pay. It's a smart call. It's a great business call. And not only are you locked for that lower rate, you're also probably getting more people to watch Contender Series or Ultimate Fighter because that's where they're going to be hailed from, right? Every fight. Well, if you saw Ryan Spann's Contender Series fight, well, if you saw Mike Millett's Contender Series, it's going to be the new norm. And this won't be every card ever, right? When the UFC goes to London for a fight night card or Austin here, right? They're going to put on some bigger cards to make sure that the gates are high enough. They're going to, you know, put name value on at least in the main event spot and probably co-main. And then throughout the card, it will depend, but it's not just going to be every fight night card is like this forever, but any apex card, this is their way to kind of dump those low cost cards here. And then up the amount of quote unquote stacked cards for traveling fight night shows and big pay-per-views. And they're still going to have pay-per-views that are kind of eh, right? Where you've got a great main card or maybe a great couple, two, three fights, and then the rest are kind of eh to keep costs down overall. But this is a way for them to kind of dump those costs into these fights and fight nights so that their pay-per-views are bigger. It's smart. It is. Think about UFC 284 right? And the fights that were on that, a little bit top-heavy, but still names there. It was a big traveling show to Australia, number one pound-for-pound versus number two pound-for-pound. They probably didn't need to stack it too much. You look at Gone and Jones, right? That pay-per-view also a little bit top-heavy, but it's got far more depth throughout than something like this. You're still going to have that happen. And, and I guarantee you, Q2, probably June, July, not necessarily International Fight Week, but 
might be international fight week could be around that time they're going to have something that just looks stacked beyond belief and everybody's going to be like whoa and that's going to help quell the fan backlash right they're going to say like well i hate these fight night cards or these pay-per-views weren't as big as they wanted but wow we get this stack card as a result part of that is just timing because again you've got to offer fighters uh contracts within certain periods you know there's injuries and champions don't want to fight in certain time frames or that you can't let champions fight too much because again, they're the most costly fighters to put on shows. But by doing this, they are smartly and yes, probably rightfully so pissing off hardcore fans. I've, I've seen more, more on social media about this card being terrible than I have in a long time. But they they get what they need, a greater profit margin. I don't know how long it will take, but I would say within five years, this is going to be the norm, if not less. Could easily be less than five years because it's, it's too lucrative. It's way too lucrative. You have to deliver a certain amount of events they're not all going to be winners. I'm sure the UFC has a baseline, right? This this card is probably a good baseline of how many people will watch UFC cards just for the sake of them being UFC cards. And as long as that baseline isn't causing too much issue with ESPN or it's high enough to certain standards, they're going to maximize the amount of cards they can get away with paying very little to fighters. Because it's their highest variable cost. And yes, they'll still do bonuses. They'll talk about, as you've seen, I'm sure that you've seen fighters say this, but then also commentary says this, right? Where it's like, well, not a ton of name value, but those are usually the best cards where you get the greatest knockouts. That's BS. Sometimes that's true, sure. But that can be true of any card. It's not necess- it, it is not a causation. Right. Correlation, not causation. It's not that, oh, we put on cards where nobody knows who's really fighting, but they because we do that, they deliver these awesome knockouts and finishes. It's amazing. No. But it's the narrative that they'll push because they want to keep the hardcore fans and those closest to the hardcore fan customer segment engaged. And that's how they do it. And you've got that. You've got obviously the big push in gambling that has got a lot of hardcore people again hooked to just show up because they're gambling or doing DraftKings fantasy, that type of stuff. Sure. But it's another way to cut costs and to satisfy their contractual obligations at the end of the day. That's what this type of card is. And it's the future. I'm telling you now, it is the future. This is what the majority of Apex cards are going to look like. You've already seen parts of it, right? It's going to get far, far worse. Every Apex card is going to be like that. And everybody's saying, when are they going to stop doing Apex cards? They're never going away. It's too lucrative. You make too much of a profit margin compared to if you did, again, a UFC Wichita with JDS headlining against Blagoy Ivanov. Okay, yeah, you've got JDS. Sure, you've got a guy that you know had a good reputation coming into the UFC. Perfect, but you're not selling out the arena. You're not driving up brand awareness where it's really causing a big groundswell. 
why host that fight there when you can make so much more money hosting it in the apex? That's my question. It's the future guys. I, you may not like it, but this is, this is what, this is how it's going to be. Let me know your thoughts on this. Are you going to watch this card? Let me know that too, because I've heard mixed results here. Uh, it's definitely one. I, I won't skip obviously because of my obligations, but like if I didn't have them, I'd certainly consider it, right? Um, curious to hear what you guys think because this is this is a rough one. And again, I think it's just the start. Okay, next thing we need to talk about is Jake Paul versus Tommy Fury. Not going to spend a ton of time on this or the fight itself, but there's a lot of buzz around the fact that the winner of this fight will get a ranking next to their name. At least that's according to WBC President Mauricio Suleiman. Now, a couple things we need to distinguish here, right? For those of you that are pure MMA fans, rankings don't work the same way at all in boxing as they do in MMA. Um, just not at all. There's a governing body that's separate of the actual promoter who decides who gets a ranking, all that fun stuff. Also, the rankings go up to 40 in WBC. So while the president did say, oh, they get a ranking and they're making it sound like if you, if you listen to some of Eddie Hearn's interviews or some other, like they're making it sound like this is such a huge thing. And it's the equivalent of getting a ranking next to your name, like in the UFC, but that's not the case at all. All he said was one of these guys gets a number next to their name. It might be 40, maybe it's 39, who knows? And in order to challenge for a belt under boxing rules, you have to be at least in the top 15 of that governing body's rankings in order to, get a title shot. So it does not mean that winner gets a title shot. They could fast track them, right? And then they fight higher ranked guys, win a couple more fights and then get a title shot. Sure. But it's, it's not what it appears on the surface. More importantly though, right? If you look at just Paul's record, an important thing to note here and why there still is what I would say, rightful backlash. Paul has not fought anyone that resembles what would be a traditional ranked boxer, right? His best win is, is Anderson Silva, a very much aged out MMA fighter who did all right in boxing. Don't get me wrong, but especially for his age, but isn't exactly like a prime up and coming guy, right? He's fought Tyra Woodley who, was not a boxer, Ben Askren, right? It's it's a former basketball player. Like, if you look at his record, yes, he's undefeated, but who he is undefeated against? The fact that if he got past Tommy Fury, who is by far his biggest test to date, that he gets a ranking next to his name is concerning. And it shows just how much this Jake Paul boxing experiment has gone. You have quotes in here, right? Um, looking at an article from CBS Boxing uh, by Brent Brookhouse. And you have quotes in here about how, you know, it's the world we live. Is it right? Not really, but it's the world we live in. Um, sometimes governing bodies have to live in that commercial world as well. That's what Eddie Hearn's talking about in terms of should Paul get a box. Uh, 
boxing ranking. And that's sort of true, right? It's the Ali Act and the protections around fighters in boxing are far better than in MMA, but they are not infallible. And under normal circumstances, it would be pretty absurd to assume the winner of this fight would get a number next to their name. But Paul has been beyond successful with drawing eyes to the sport, backing up his trash talk, bringing more money into the sport and creating probably more hardcore back boxing fans than anyone in the past. I don't know how many years, right? I mean, you had the Fury fights when he came back uh, and uh, Anthony Joshua, who did a good job there. But I would argue that Paul has eclipsed them in terms of bringing a younger demographic and converting younger new fans who are exposed to it through Paul's boxing into hardcore fans, right? Yes, I'm sure when Fury came back and, and when you had those big fights at heavyweight, you got some new hardcore fans for sure. But this is another level of that with what Jake Paul has accomplished. You can't take that away from him from a business perspective. And like WBC, you want to keep that rolling in an ideal world. He gets better and better until he's challenging for real belts. And then he brings his entire YouTube audience with him. And again, he's not bringing in the entire YouTube audience and all of that stuff. That's not the case. Uh, there is a subset of his followers that then would watch. And then those that watch a subset of that would become fans ranging from very casual where maybe if Jake's boxing, I'll watch to like, oh, I really like the sport now and I want to be a part of it. That's just how the funnel works for any, any lead funnel. Anybody in marketing can tell you that there's a sales funnel. And it starts with leads, it goes all the way down, and it trickles down. You're hoping for percentages of conversion in each batch. And that's why the larger net you cast, the better your results are. It's all about getting those percentages at the right spot. Paul is certainly doing that, especially skewing the younger P18 to 49 demo that is big with advertisers still. So if you're WBC, do you make a concession like this? Uh, you have to live in that commercial world. I mean, Eddie Hearn is right in this case. It, it's too lucrative and too important from an industry standard, probably, to not make that concession. And again, even if it's number 40, if he wins. Great. You've, you've put him in the rankings. Now he still has to challenge up. And if he wants to, he has to fight legitimate threats. And you're able to promote this fight and tout it as a like, well, winner gets ranked. And what a lot of casual fans or people that don't know the intricacies of this are going to see when that pops up is, man, this is, you know, top 15. It's a good, again, good selling tactic. And that's what it all comes down to. Boxing is certainly not dead, but it was definitely on the decline for quite some time, especially as MMA was making its advent and rise. 
Paul has breathed some new life into that. Is it sustainable long-term? All that stuff? I, it's too early to tell, but it's been a good substitute for MMA, especially in terms of fighters being able to MMA fighters who can't get the pay that they want. And they're looking for an option. If they're able to get Paul's attention or they're able to get a boxer's attention, they're able to kind of make that transition and everybody's doing it right. I mean, you have cyborg boxing, you have Nganu. All he wants to do is do an exhibition with fury or, and, and, you know, he's basically said fury said we would do all these, this checklist and then let's get this fight done. And Gano's like, yep, I'll do the checklist. Of course he would. Why would he not? It's too much money. Nate Diaz almost certainly going to go ahead and box um, Paul or again, there's the rumored Mayweather fight. I don't know that that's going to happen. Haven't heard anything else on that, but I mean, it's of course, of course they're going to go there. They're going to make way more money, even if they lose than they would doing MMA. It's been a viable substitute for them. If you have name value and you've, past the championship window or the prime of your MMA career, go do boxing off of your name and make way more money. Big question here is, let's say Paul wins, gets ranked, then fights Nate Diaz. Does that mean Nate Diaz gets a number next to his name if he beats Paul? Probably, yes. And again, boxers are probably going to love that. Could you imagine the headlines of Nate Diaz as a ranked boxer? Of course it's going to make money. doesn't matter if it's 40. doesn't matter if it's 39. It's going to make money, and that's what they care about. And it's good for the industry as a whole. And yes, the governing bodies that do rankings have to adhere to certain standards, but if they can skirt them a little, which as we've seen commissions do in MMA and other and, and boxing. And it's for what they believe the betterment of the sport. Why not? Why not? And that's what's going on here. It, it's, it's too big to not take a stab at this opportunity. And that's what they're counting on. Now let's say Fury beats Paul and then Fury ends up fighting a ranked boxer and it doesn't do well. Well, that's fine too. But Fury obviously has his name and Paul will be another notch in his belt and notoriety to elevate him. I mean, I mean, it's a win-win situation in terms of what happens this Saturday. Get Nate Diaz involved again. Uh, it, it gets even bigger, potentially. It's too good to pass up. And that's what this is. Let me know your thoughts on this. Let me know if you're going to watch Paul versus Fury. Um, if you think they should get a ranking, but uh, it's again, exceptions are always in every industry in every business for unique movements. This, in my opinion, qualifies as one of them. All right. Next up, we need to talk about an MMA pension fund bill that is being introduced in California. So this article comes from MMA Fighting, talking about Ronda Rousey's support for this bill. Uh, important to note that Ronda Rousey's mom is a commissioner for the California State Athletic Commission. Uh, and, and I quote from the article, the new bill introduced to the California legislature on February 15th by California State Assembly member Matt Haney, Democrat for San Francisco, proposes to establish 
an MMA pension fund using revenue from a tax on MMA event tickets and concessions, as well as personal contributions. The fund will be managed by the California State Athletic Commission, which will invest the revenue into an investment account and distribute money to fighters when they schedule a certain number of rounds in the state. So when they say invest that, that's something to a lot of people misunderstand about pension funds. The money doesn't just sit there and then they're paid out. You've got a manager who's trying to invest that money so it continues to grow, so it can be sustained. Pensions have kind of gone the way of the dodo a little bit in the States. A lot of bigger companies have had to convert them into 401k payouts because people are living longer and you can't give everybody, you know, X amount of thousand dollars per month without it being at risk of uh, running out, especially during certain downturns, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, from the article, again, I quote, California boxers are unique in combat sports to benefit from a pension fund, which was established in 1982. They are eligible to receive benefits after they turn 50 and have completed 75 rounds. So that's 75 rounds of fighting in California. Same age requirement would apply for MMA fighters, but the California State Athletic Commission Executive Director Andy Foster wants them to be eligible when they've completed around 13 fights or between 36 and 39 rounds. Fighters still get credit for the number of scheduled rounds and about. So... Um, that means important to call out there because if you're in a main event, right, scheduled for five rounds and you get a knockout in round one, you still get five rounds credit. You're not just like, Oh, you're only here for one. So it's same with a three round fight or anything like that too. Um, then it talks about Rosie's mom, uh, and Maria DeMars as a commissioner with this California state athletic commission. Um, and, also served on a subcommittee convened this past summer to add MMA fighters to the pension. Uh, so she suggested that Nick and Nate Diaz, who Rousey trained uh, with, would be ideal candidates for the pension. So, and, and then it goes on actually to talk about the bill. Um, we'll be first assigned to a committee within the House that will review the bill likely in March. Uh, expects fighters and former fighters to testify in favor of it before it receives a vote by the house similar thing happens in the senate just like federal right you have to go to the house first then the senate and then if passed a uh, governor will sign it into law haney is hoping that it will be signed into law by september and quotes from haney say there's no cost to the state uh, we've worked out the issues before introduction with the promoters who are supportive i think that making sure that adequate revenue and that we bring in other opportunities for revenue will be cr critical. So that's Haney basically talking about, again, the pension problem, which is people are living longer and it's harder to get the rates of return that you need in order to continue to sustain it because a pension pays out a certain amount per month. And then you have cost of living increases with inflation right now that I'm sure will be, you know, harder to keep pensions going because if you are getting 2000 a month per life for, or 2000 per month for life. And then all of a sudden inflation jumps eight, nine, 10%. Well, that causes some issues for people. Right. Um, and he also said that UFC and Bellator are not in opposition to the bill. Suggests the promotions consider regular contributions to fund to potentially expand its reach to fighters who retired before it was implemented. Uh, regular contributions. It's unlikely again, given endeavors, cost cutting stretch structure and, and what Bellator is trying to do too. They might do it, as an act of charity or something that they'd promote, like, Hey, we're investing into this fund because we believe in it to get some goodwill to buy PR, but they're not going to regularly do it just for the sake of doing it. It would have to be for the right amount of PR. I'm sure they would run the numbers and crunch that for marketing. Uh, for now, the plan is to set aside $1 for, from every MMA ticket sold 
for the pension fund. Uh, so according to Foster here, told ESPN the average distri- distribution to an eligible boxer is $19,000. He expects to raise the per ticket tax to $1 for boxing events. Uh, so it's, it's a big deal. Um, Rousey makes some comments here. Don't care as much about that. But it's a big deal because this, again, is is something, not not a great one, but something of a safety net and benefit to fighters, right? Right now, they get injured, they retire, that's it. They've got to f- make their bones off of their name value, uh, coaching, r- running gyms, right? Doing different jobs, and they have to continue work, the, the majority of fighters anyway. You make it into the rankings high enough. Um, maybe you are able to parlay that into certain sponsorships. Maybe you're able to, if you're well-spoken and you know good at analysis, maybe you can get a commentary job, although those are few and far between and right now seem pretty sure up. Uh, but you know, you're, you're looking at a transition from, yep, I was a fighter to now I've got to get another job. There is no retirement here. It's not, you're not putting in a percentage of your 401k. You don't have great healthcare, obviously, and you're going to have long lasting effects from fights, depending on who you are. This is something, at least this is something. It's, it's not enough to, you know, break out the bubbly, so to speak, and say, wow, this is going to really change the game, but it's a step in the right direction. And that's huge for momentum with other things, right? Um, as we'll talk about in a little bit here, it may be the first domino to fall in a much larger set of dominoes. But a big question around all this is, will it actually pass? Now, California is one of the most progressive states in terms of workers' rights and um, you know, being in favor of the worker compared to uh, you know, pro pro company and pro corporate, so to speak. I think there's a very good chance this passes. I don't know the exact political landscape of California right now. It's not something I regularly follow, but nothing I have seen or heard indicates that it has shifted enough where this would face strong opposition within the Democratic Party. Uh, And as long as that doesn't happen, this will pass from the state side of things, right? Governor, I would imagine, will sign this into law. And given how progressive they've been with the hydration stuff, some of that, like, I I can't imagine this doesn't go through. Will UFC and Bellator continue to host events there? Yeah, though, I'm sure they will go there on occasion. I don't think they will go there more than they're traveling now. They may even cut down a little bit, depending on certain other factors again macro environment with interest rates rising maybe the ufc decides to not do california that year because they know that you know there's going to be a tax on the gate every dollar counts to these guys sometimes so you, you never know but i think ultimately it will be something that's set up doesn't change too much of california's relationship with mma as is right now and it will kind of allow for um fighters to have at least something it could affect smaller promotions, right? Um, if you're looking at LFA or, you know, Titan fighting or any of those guys doing a California show that they, they might hold off on it. Um, or they might think about it because that money is way more impactful 
gate money is hugely more impactful and, and a necessary critical revenue stream for pretty much all of the non-major MMA promotions. Anyone that doesn't have a media rights deal, basically. So to have that tax come on, it could... I mean, they might have exemption, uh, exemptions as well, right? Depending on if you have to gross a certain amount before the tax, who knows? But as of right now, it, it's going to be interesting to see where the language goes with that and if it will affect smaller promotions because they're they're going to be the ones who are going to feel it much more than, say, the UFC or Bellator. But I think it probably does pass, and I think it could be the domino that starts a lot of other things that we'll talk about here in a second. I don't know that it will get done by September, but I would say this year it probably gets passed. And I would assume you will have fighters start to say, yep, I would like to fight in California more, right? Or get my rounds in California. That could lead to fighters who are, probably past their prime trying to continue to fight so they could make sure they're eligible for this stuff. Hopefully not. I mean, 13 fights, right? Uh, how many UFC fighters careers are, are have, have last 13 fights? How many, you know, it, it's, you look at it that way, it's going to be a little bit rougher. And it's another thing to point out too. This only helps long-term fighters, Right. It does not help based on, on 36 to 39 rounds. It does not help somebody who comes into the UFC, maybe goes two and two, uh, re-ups once and then kind of, you know, goes another one and two and gets cut unless they go to a regional promotion and they're fighting on. And, and you could see that. I imagine you will see an influx of Bellator, UFC PFL vets, if they are released, they will be fighting and, and they want to continue to fight. They're going to be fighting more in California. I do imagine that. But again, the exact ramifications of this is, is kind of unknown. I do think it'll pass though. I really do. Um, and it could lead to the rise of more, you know, feeder leagues, right? You could see a new LFA pop up, especially if they're purely in California. They're trying to be pro fighter. And the way they do that is they get ex-UFC guys, ex-Bellator guys fighting in their promotion on the regional scene who are trying to get back in. And also trying to get rack up those rounds so they can get the pension. It will depend on you know what the average payout is too as well. I mean, $19,000 per boxer is is nothing to scoff at, but it's not, you know, going to change your life necessarily. But then again, if you want to keep fighting, you want to get that money. It's, it's something. And I would imagine you're going to see more fighters stick around. If they're close to hitting that threshold, stick around just so they can get there. Could cause negative effects of people getting beat up, you know, hopefully not another Bigfoot Silva situation or something like that. But I mean, that's where we're at with this. And, and I do think it's passed and, and, who knows? Let me know your thoughts on this. I'm curious to see if people think this is going to help regional MMA, especially in California. If you're living in California, would you go to more shows if suddenly you see a John Dodson versus a, I don't know, I don't know, any, anybody that's recently been let go, 
William Knight versus somebody. Well, maybe, but uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm curious to hear your guys' thoughts on this. It it could have a lot more ramifications than what you may think on the surface. I will say that much. All right, last thing we're going to cover on the show today is an interview that was done by my boy JHK over at the All Star. If you have not check that out you totally should uh john does fantastic work uh, always great with the interviews does this stuff he had jim west who is aspen lads head coach on the show and an interesting thing that was brought to my attention was that towards the end of that interview west makes comments about you can't talk about it too much uh but he knows certain people in the lobbying industry and there is supposedly a pension fund coming for MMA fighters to the federal level that will have language that also mimics the Ali act. He doesn't go into any specifics here. It's, you know, something that he he keeps pretty close to the chest in the interview, but I thought it was worth talking about because we should revisit the Ali act expansion for MMA fighters a little bit, especially with the buzz going on. Because you've got Wes saying this, you also have um, a couple other fighters saying that they've talked to Rep. Mark Wayne Mullen or the MMAFA kind of saying some stuff uh, where there, there at least seems to be more buzz about that legislation coming back than there has been in a while. Definitely since Trump's presidency. And if West's comments are true, that's huge. This is this is the one thing that could actually change things for MMA fighters somewhat overnight, and it's the one viable option, right? I know MMA on point did a great video breaking down, um, you know, the three methods of you know fighter pay changes. Uh, John Nash has talked about millions of different options, including you know a fighter kind of players organization similar to the MLBPA, things like that. Uh, the antitrust lawsuit is out there that we all know of. It's going at a snail's pace. It's still not technically class certified, which is mind boggling. But ultimately, this is the one thing that could happen in the next year, two years, and then overnight it changes everything, right? If the Ali Act gets introduced to MMA and is passed and signed by the president, at a federal level, that infinitely changes the game. And there's not much that can be done to stop it. I would imagine the minute that law hits and 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 is signed, it is challenged at some form of level by the UFC. Anything they can find to kind of get an injunction, stop that, sure, it's going to happen. But it's going to be hard to get anywhere with that if it was passed due to the fact that you've already got it for boxing, right? And as we just discussed with the MMA pension fund in California, that might be the first domino. That's how this works. It's never, it's never, well, never say never, but it's it's almost never, seldom, the way it works where, hey, this was introduced and it was signed and it's it changes things from, uh, you know, overnight, night and day, at a federal level. Usually there is a groundswell. Usually states make some 
laws or proposed changes to something, there's enough talk about it that it gains momentum with other states, and then it may eventually hit the federal level. The MMA pension fund in California, if that gets passed, could easily be, be pointed to as an example of, look, we've seen the Ali Act for Boxing. We see what they're trying to do in California. We want to bring that to a federal level. I don't think other states will necessarily follow California's lead. I would imagine the next state to follow would be New York or um, another, again, very progressive Democrat-controlled state uh, with known progressive tendencies. New York makes the most sense. I can't really think. Illinois could hypothetically, um, but... Those are the two main front runners for following California's lead. And let's say even just one other state does this, right? Um, well, now you've got two states that have, have passed these laws. It, it's in effect for a bit. That helps to build pressure and examples of safety nets working at a federal level. When I got wind of this, I reached out to a couple of contacts I know. They haven't heard anything about new legislation outside of Mark Wayne Mullen's Expansion Act. Uh, I did reach out to Rep. Mark Wayne Mullen. I have not heard back about if he does plan to bring that to the House floor and um, you know, kind of go that route. Um, but it's it's definitely an interesting time in terms of... Just the, the buzz about stuff. And and sorry, I said House floor, but I meant Senate um, on the Senate side for Mullen's bill. I said this before. The way that things are set up right now in Congress, you can get a bill like this passed, right? You no longer have Trump and Dana White's connection connection. If anything, you've got an internal struggle going on between Republicans where many Republicans would probably love to stick it to Trump in some way, and this is a way to do that. Um, and you've got a Democratic-controlled Senate and a very thin margin of Republican control in the House that if you have, you know, 10 I don't remember the exact number, but I mean, let's just say 10 because uh, it's within that range. Republican House representatives who, who jump up on this and agree with it, it's going to pass, at least through simple majority, right? And that's very doable in this current climate, especially because Mullen, who's introducing this, is Republican as well. This is not a bill being introduced by a Democrat. And that will only help garner more support in the House of Representatives for passing it. It's a bipartisan bill that could get done. And it changes everything. This is the environment that I believe is at least so far the best environment of it actually happening. Past four or five years really six years, not so much. But right now, given the breakout of everything, given the fact that, you know, 
2024 is on the horizon. There is an internal struggle going on within the Republican Party where, depending on how things align, you have certain representatives who are going to want to find ways, unique and creative ways to send Trump a message. This is a way to do that. And again, I don't want this to devolve politically too much. We have to talk about it because of just the fact this is a political <laughs> issue with it being federal legislation. But yeah, it, it certainly seems to me what I'm getting. I haven't heard anything again um, from my sources, and I'm not a big source guy. I get them on occasion, and I'm like, hey, look at me. But <laughs> it, it's rare, right? Uh, and I've, I've, again, reached out. For comment uh, for a couple people have not heard back, but it feels like this is actually something that could be pulled off, and that's huge. And the fact that California is looking to pass this pension fund as well, I mean, it's the type of environment, it's not exactly the same, but it feels a little bit similar to what happened with fantasy sports kind of making their way and getting acceptance and then that leading to the overall greater sports ban being lifted and kind of paving the way to so many states allowing gambling on sports, which again is pretty new, as well as in some, again, not direct tangents, but the best things I can kind of pick out right now, similar to states doing marijuana as as a recreational drug and seeing the revenue there and seeing more and more states accepting marijuana as first as medical usage now as just free open usage it feels like this is the first domino it's not going to be super fast it could hypothetically happen this year but i think it will be a slower build i think there is enough support that it could get done i do believe that and if it gets done, again, that's a game changer. Yes, there are a lot of fears I, that I understand in terms of, you know, seeing what's kind of happened with boxing and you would have all of these belts and all this other stuff. I get it. But it also would provide a protection and level for fighters that has not been seen in MMA probably ever. And it's not necessarily a good thing for all fighters. We can do another video on that about how if the Ali Act is starting to get, Expansion Act is getting momentum or there is another piece of legislation that's going to mimic some of those clauses, we could talk about the fact that if you're a lower tier fighter, if you're Dana White Contender Series, it's not necessarily going to help you. But it is going to help the top one through five ranked guys. It is going to at least provide some protections there. Um, and, and disrupt the balance of power that's currently in the MMA industry. It would be a big blow to Endeavor in the UFC, obviously, for a million different reasons. These are things to consider. These are big, big things to consider. So, again, we'll keep an eye on it. We'll, we'll see if there's any changes. But, yeah, it certainly has got that vibe that, that this might be the first domino and we, we might be looking at a whole new world, so to speak, in MMA sooner rather than later through an unlikely source. 
All right, guys. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Fight Business Podcast. Appreciate you all for watching and listening. If you're watching on YouTube, hit the like, subscribe, bell notification button. If you're listening on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, what have you, always appreciate you guys. Uh, I'm getting a little sick here. Work's been crazy. Try my best to get more consistent. Do those mini videos I've talked about. I've got part of one done. It's just not, not there yet, but I will get them out. Uh, and with that in mind, appreciate, love you as always. And until next time, Get money.